Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Several years ago, right around Easter, as they tend to do, a major newspaper interviewed a handful of prominent pastors and theologians and asked one simple question. If Jesus' bones were discovered tomorrow, would you still be a Christian? If Jesus' bones were discovered tomorrow, would you still be a Christian? For many, the answer was yes. Some of them never believed in Jesus' physical resurrection to begin with. It was always just spiritual or metaphorical. Others suggested that even if it turned out that Jesus was still dead after all, it wouldn't change much. He would still live on in our hearts. Still others suggested that because you don't need a living Jesus to recognize the value of his teachings, then yes, they would still consider themselves Christians. Well, this morning I have a confession to make. If Jesus' bones, beyond the shadow of a doubt, were found tomorrow, I would no longer be a Christian. Would you? Think about that. Chew on it in the back of your mind. We'll come back to it. But for now, open up to John chapter 20. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go further... Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Not just today, as important as today is, but each and every Sunday, each and every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on, we wake up and celebrate the fact that you are risen, that you are risen indeed. But Lord, I pray that as we focus this day especially on your resurrection, that you would give our worship a new sense of joy, that you would give our devotion to you a a deeper sense of strength, that you would give our fellowship just a closer bond as believers in Christ. Lord, thank you that we have the privilege of coming here year after year and Hearing the same things, saying the same things, celebrating the same things, because these same things never get old. They've been celebrated for 2,000 years, and we're going to celebrate them for 2,000 years more. We're going to celebrate them forever, whether it's here or somewhere else. So, Lord, thank you again for Easter. Thank you for the opportunity to be here in this place at this time with these people, affirming that you are risen. We love you, we worship you, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we ended last week in John chapter 17, which is often known as Jesus' high priestly prayer, not long before his death. But when that very moving prayer concludes, and we pick up in John chapter 18, it appears that everything Jesus has built comes crashing down. He's betrayed by Judas, arrested by Roman soldiers, subjected to an unjust trial 
by the religious leaders, denied by Peter, rejected by his fellow Jews, and thrown to the wolves by the Roman ruler Pilate. In the eyes of many, this is an absolute train wreck. But according to John, Jesus is still in control. He saw all this coming. And he told us so many chapters earlier. Jesus understands this suffering as something he must do in obedience to God the Father. Jesus believes that this all must take place to fulfill Old Testament prophecies from long ago. Even if that means he must head to a cross. And we see that cross in chapter 19, starting in verse 16. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, And Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews But rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, but I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it. But cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Way back in the fall, we compared the gospel of John to an artist's portrait of Jesus. But here, the story seems more like a tragic work of art. Don't let John's simplicity, brevity, and matter-of-fact way of speaking fool you. Crucifixion was a horrible way to die. 
the Jewish historian Josephus referred to crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths. The Roman statesman Cicero called it a most cruel and terrible penalty. The cross was the perfect storm of bodily pain, mental torture, and public shame. But even on that cross, Jesus is still in control. He considers his actions to be fulfilling scripture. He says it is finished, almost like he's checked something off his to-do list. And his life isn't taken from him. John makes a point to say that Jesus gave up his spirit when he was good and ready. But how did it come to this? Well, to be honest, the Gospel of John has always been leading up to this moment. It goes back as far as chapter 1, when John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that day and age, every Jew knew about God's sacrificial system. Spotless lambs have been offered to atone for sin for generations. The fact that so many had been offered for so long tells you something about their level of effectiveness. It goes back as far as chapter 10, when Jesus called himself the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. And it goes back to chapter 12. Where Jesus said that he would glorify God by being lifted up from the earth. Like he is on the cross. All along, Jesus understood himself to be the perfect sacrifice. Dying to cover the sins of those who believe in him for God's glory. In short, the cross was no accident. Now, some may hear all of that and still shudder at the ugliness of the painting. But when understood rightly, this artist's portrait of Jesus, even as he hangs beaten, bloodied, and bruised on the most gruesome tool of execution ever invented by sinful humanity, this painting is still breathtakingly beautiful. And that's especially the case when we remember that the work of art is not yet complete. We read in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been used on Jesus' head, 
not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Just think about the confusion, the exhilaration, the shock these disciples must have experienced. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And all those things that Jesus had said that didn't make sense at the time, such as, I have the authority to lay my life down and authority to take it up again, it all starts coming together. Peter and the other disciple head home, but Mary stuck around. She encounters angels. She worries that someone may have taken Jesus' body. She sees a gardener and even suggests that he might be the culprit. But then she realizes that gardener is the risen Christ himself. So she announces to her fellow disciples, I have seen the Lord. You have to think that the excitement among Jesus' followers must have reached a fever pitch. Imagine the roller coaster ride of emotions that they've been on. Unspeakable grief followed by inexpressible joy. And if there was any doubt, the risen Christ appears to his gathered disciples just a few verses later. In verses 19 through 23, he even shows them his scars to prove that it's really him. But there is something interesting in that encounter in the Gospel of John. It's unique to the Gospel of John. As it turns out, there were only ten of Jesus' twelve disciples in that upper room that first Easter Sunday. Judas is gone. That leaves eleven. But who else is missing? Thomas was nowhere to be found that first Easter Sunday. Where was Thomas? What was he doing? Why wasn't he there? We don't know for sure. But we pick up his story in the following verses. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Thomas is a pretty reasonable guy. He didn't need modern medicine to recognize that dead people don't rise. And sure, he had seen Jesus raise Lazarus, but who in the world will raise Jesus? You're out of luck when the only person who can raise the dead winds up dead. So when he hears the disciples' excitement, he demands proof. He wants the same evidence they got. They could have been misled, guilty of wishful thinking, or simply allowed grief to cloud their judgment. Again, we can only speculate about why Thomas was absent that first Easter Sunday. Maybe he was trying to move on. Maybe he was scared that he could be next. Maybe he, like every other Jew, understood that the Messiah wasn't supposed to die. But then Thomas gets his proof. It's interesting that we never see Thomas actually touch the marks on Jesus' body the way he insisted he would. In Thomas's case, seeing is believing. His doubts are erased. His questions are answered. And doubting Thomas, of all people, makes one of the most astounding and enthusiastic statements of Jesus' identity anywhere in the Bible. My Lord and my God. What a blessing it was for Thomas to see the risen Christ and believe. But even more blessed are those who don't get the same proofs that Thomas got, but can say the same thing. My Lord and my God. I pray that all in this room would be included in that number. Now, earlier we asked the question, if Jesus' bones were found tomorrow, beyond the shadow of a doubt, would you still be a Christian? My answer is no. I suspect Thomas's answer would have been no, too. And to be honest, I think that should be your answer as well. That was also the Apostle Paul's answer. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. For Paul, if Jesus' bones were found tomorrow, then this sermon is all for nothing. This building is all for nothing. This Sunday is no different than any other day. If Jesus' bones were found tomorrow, the world would laugh at Christians. And they should. Tim Keller writes that when he encounters someone struggling to accept the truths of the Christian faith, he usually responds with something like this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Historical fact of Jesus Christ's physical resurrection. If it didn't happen, why are we even here? To rub elbows? To have something to do? To be entertained? To feel good about ourselves? With all due respect, there are other places besides the church where you can get those things, and they don't ask you for money. As Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, this is all a waste of time. But we're here this morning because we do believe that Christ rose from the dead. We're here today because we share the same conviction that Thomas uttered. Jesus is our Lord and our God. And for us, his resurrection is the ultimate proof. Of course, there are still skeptics out there. And even after we believe, we may still occasionally wrestle with our own doubts and our own questions. So allow me to take a moment and give just a few arguments for why we believe in Jesus' bodily resurrection. First, scripture is clear. Jesus rose from the dead. All four Gospels, the Apostle Paul, and other New Testament writers all stress that Jesus is alive. Some of them even make a point to stress Jesus' physical resurrection. Not metaphorical or spiritual. And as these New Testament authors write their own books, they look back to the Old Testament. And they find words about Jesus' resurrection there too. Scripture is clear that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And while Scripture is the believer's primary authority for what we believe and what we do, it's not our only authority. We also believe that Jesus rose from the dead through reason. The theories against Jesus' bodily resurrection, like Jesus not really dying on the cross, but only passing out, the disciples going to the wrong tomb, 
For Jesus' body being stolen by his own followers, that way they can keep the movement going. Those theories simply don't hold water. Now, someone may argue that no reasonable person can believe in miracles. There's a rational, natural explanation for everything. But deep down, we all know that things happen in this world that we simply can't explain. Miracles don't happen except for when they do. It's not unreasonable to believe in this one. We also believe that Jesus rose from the dead because of tradition. Now, tradition may not be a popular word these days, but there's something to be said for a doctrine being examined, ridiculed, and attacked for some 2,000 years but somehow still holding up. Christians throughout the centuries have gone to crosses of their own, have been burned at stakes, have devoted their lives to their conviction that Jesus rose from the dead. Many of history's greatest minds have believed in Jesus' physical resurrection. That's nothing to sneeze at. Blaise Pascal once wrote, I tend to believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. In other words, if someone is willing to die for something, you should at least take that something seriously. There's a long tradition of believers going to their graves, utterly convinced of Jesus' resurrection. We are in good company as we affirm that he is risen. And finally, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead through experience. Now, this may be the most subjective authority, but it has a place in the conversation. And it's true that, as far as I know, nobody in this room has had the same sort of experience with the risen Christ that Thomas did. But ask yourself this. When you consider the words, the deeds, the character of the Christians around you, do you find yourself thinking, maybe even slightly hoping, that these people could be on to something? If we're doing our job, hopefully the answer is yes. We believe this Easter Sunday and every other Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe he is who he said he is. We believe he did what he said he did. And we believe that he really will do what he said he will do. He is our Lord and our God. He died as the ransom for our sins. And he will come again in power and glory. And without his resurrection... Our faith crumbles. So do you believe this? Again, we don't know why Thomas was absent that first Easter Sunday. And calling him Doubting Thomas may be a bit unfair. But we serve even after we believe. Maybe you're here and you don't believe at all. You never have. Well, this Easter, 
May we consider the arguments for Jesus' resurrection. If you already believe, I pray that your faith would be bolstered by them. And if you don't believe, I pray that I've at least given you a few things to think about. So in conclusion, if Jesus' bones were found tomorrow, I would not be a Christian. And honestly, I don't think you should be either. That's how central Jesus' resurrection is to our faith. But the good news is this. Jesus' bones won't be found tomorrow. They won't be found the day after that. They never will be. Because right now, Jesus Christ is sitting at his Father's right hand. He died, he rose, and he will come again. So do not disbelieve, but believe that he is your Lord and your God. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for the truth of the resurrection. Thank you that even when we have our moments of questioning, doubting, wrestling with these claims in scripture that just seem unfathomable. Thank you that you're patient with us, that you're gracious to us, that at times when we can be a little bit like Thomas, when we can be critical, when we wrestle with our doubts, you can handle those doubts. Thank you that you are kind and generous to Condescend to us in some ways and give us proofs that we need. Give us help in this long walk of faith. Lord, help us be people who believe, not people who disbelieve. Help us be people who can stare death in the eye and know that death has lost its sting. Help us be the kind of people who can be utterly confident that we are yours And that you are ours. Help us be the kind of people who really truly do believe that we have no fear in life. That death has no power over us. Help us be the kind of people who really do believe that we are your children and we are your servants by faith. Help us be the kind of people who really do believe that No power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hand. Help us believe that we are forgiven. Help us believe that we are known. Help us believe that we are saved. Lord, help us know that we are yours. As sure as Christ rose from the dead. We love you. We honor you. We worship you. We thank you this Easter Sunday and every other Sunday that you are risen. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.